Well, we are in Psalm 119 this morning. This is part 16. Stanza number 16 in this glorious Psalm 119. 22 stanzas, and we're in uh, stanza 16, so we're nearing the end of our study here. I'd like to open up this stanza by asking you a question before we kind of dive in, because I think it's this stanza out of all of them is perhaps one of my favorites. And he, he uses some words here that are so uh, resonant for us, especially for those who wish to learn and dive deeper into the gospel. We are in stanza 16, which begins in verse 121. Before we get there, though, I, I, you don't have to say it out loud. Just think in your heads, though. Uh, think in your heads, what does the gospel mean? What, if you were asked to define the gospel, how would you define it? You know, in our churches today, there's a lot of talk about being gospel-centered. Being gospel-centric in our preaching and in our ministry and, and all those sorts of things. And that's very well good. It's, it's very good that we are centering and driving to get our churches functioning, our lives functioning around the gospel. Keeping the things in the cent- where they should be in the center But really, what does that mean? What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Because I think it's important that if you say uh, you believe in the gospel and that you are a gospel-centered person, what does the gospel mean? What is that gospel that you are ascribing to? As you can see, you can learn about in the scriptures, as you can see all around in our world, people have different quote-unquote gospels that they live by. So it's important to define what type of gospel you're centering your life around. But I would say that it's uh, throughout the scriptures, it's possible to define the gospel in uh, a very few words. You know, I think about in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, it is, where Paul is talking about how the state of man is, is awful and egregious and how he's dead and trespasses and sins, right? That's Ephesians 2 verse 1. And then he has that glorious two words in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, I think it is, where he says, But God, <laughs> but God, wherewith he showed us his glorious love and mercy and grace, and he goes on to expound the gospel from there. You could define the gospel just in those two words. But God, it's the intervention of God in our lives. Or I think of another way to define the gospel is, we, we, we don't think about it a lot, is where Paul is introducing a letter. You know, he's giving those salutations and we can just skip over them. But oftentimes he packs so much stuff in the salutations and Paul will say, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is essentially the gospel in three words, grace, mercy, peace. (laughs) But I hear there's another two words that I think define the gospel for us here, right in Psalm Psalm 119, verse 122. Look at the first two words. Be surety. Be surety for thy servant for good. Now, I'm going to expound on that because I think those two words are some of the most, to me, influential words that define the gospel. And you might be scratching your heads, how? Well, we're going to get into that. But before we get there, uh, let me just start by saying this also. 
One of my favorite television shows of the last several years, it went off the air in 2010, was the legal show Law and Order, the original one that started in the 90s. Uh, they had so many, you know, offshoots of that show, but I didn't really care for any of those. I used to watch that show almost every Wednesday after church, because at least that's when it was on where I was. Um, but it, Law and Order, it was, it was it's one of the longest, I think it's the third longest running scripted television shows. Um, it ran from 1990 to 2010. And it sh I loved that show because it was unique in its emphasis because it wasn't just about a courtroom and it wasn't just about the police officers who preceded that part. It was both of them together. Uh, and the show was unique in that it emphasized both sides of law enforcement, investigation and prosecution. And it showed how both sides of the law work together in order to bring criminals to justice. And they, and they did that very well. I, I loved that show. But there was, always, there was always a moment in every single episode where you knew, I call it the something big is about to go down moment. Because <laughs> you knew it was coming. You know why? Because they would have those, those weird, synthy, brooding music come on. You knew once that music came on, something was going to happen. They were going to find a piece of evidence or more than likely the person that was on the stand was about to make this bold, daring, or gut-wrenching confession. <laughs> and you knew either the prosecution's case was going to be ruined or it was going to be uh, validated. And something, But you knew something was coming. You knew something was going to happen. <coughs> I always loved those moments because <laughs> whenever you saw those moments in the show, you could always count on also what happens next. There's that phrase, dead silence. You know, the person on the witness stand eventually makes the, you know, the confession to whatever crime they did, and everyone is silent. <laughs> the jury is silent. The attorneys who are talking the whole time, they're all of a sudden silent. And you, the audience, are, are just shell-shocked in silence too because you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they confessed. And this confession just leaves everyone speechless. It's an ominous silence because no one has anything left to say. Uh, the prosecution can't argue their case anymore. Neither can the defense. It's just, here's the results. Here's the verdict. They've almost just incriminated themselves. Well, I think that's essentially what is happening here with David. It's, it's this scene where he is confessing to the father, be surety, is a similar scene that we have here. This is a similar scene, and this stanza, it's brought, it brings it to mind, at least for me. Uh, let's read this stanza, starting in verse 121. David writes, I have done judgment and justice. Leave me not to mine oppressors. Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy and teach me thy statutes. I am thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Here he begins this stanza by pledging that he has done, he says, judgment and justice. He has done what is good and what is right. 
And he says, do not leave me. Do not forsake me. Do not let me go. Because he's pleading his case. But we have to get to that verse 122. Because this is what his pledge here. His pledge of doing judgment and justice is based on these two words. Be surety. This is the basis of this entire stanza here. Be my surety, he's essentially saying. And we talked about this on Wednesday, and I think this will be, feel a little bit uh, repeated for Doris and Norm back there, but we were talking about this word surety, or in Dave too, he was here on Wednesday. Uh, this is that word we were talking about on Wednesday, but it's so important. It's a weighty word. Surety is a word with a lot of heft to it. It's a word, if you just look it up in a dictionary, the word surety means a person who takes responsibility for another person's performance of an undertaking. Essentially, it could be a person taking responsibility for another person in a courtroom or uh, more than likely in a payment of a debt. So if you have someone take your place in the courtroom or take your place in paying your debt, that person has functioned as your surety. They have taken responsibility for something you deserved or something you owed. So this other person, this surety, is taking ownership of what you deserved of what someone else owed. And they have taken up this responsibility to the, the great, the nth degree, we might say, in that they are going to pay it in full. They're not going to leave anything unpaid for, not going to leave anything to doubt or question. This is what God has done for us. This is the glorious part of this stanza, and we might even say, stretch it, this is the glorious part of the entire scriptures, is that it reveals that we have a surety in Christ himself. That he has taken up our place, he has taken up our debt, and willingly offered to pay it himself. This is, we might say this, this is the good news that leaves the law speechless. You know that moment that we were talking about law and order when something happens and there's no other arguments left to make? This is what Jesus functions as for us in the gospel. He comes and he says, I will take your case. I will stand in your place and take your verdict. The righteousness at that point is fulfilled. The law is fulfilled. It has no more accusations to give you. No more arguments to make against you. It's left silent. Jesus silences the law for us. Why? Because he is our surety. He takes responsibility for the sin, the debt of sin that we owe. This is the beautiful, beautiful, uh, immense doctrine that we have here in these two words. He is our surety. He exchanges his life for our death. And he takes our situation as his own. Our situation as depraved, deplorable sinners who, are, are, who deserve death. And he pledges, Jesus Christ, our Lord, pledges here to fulfill all the obligations that we owed the law. And he, he pledges to fulfill them in our place, in our stead. This is his Act as a surety that he himself 
God himself is our mediator, our attorney. He speaks on our behalf. You can, we, I spoke, or I, I gave a sermon on this some months ago when we were talking about Zechariah 3, where the high priest Joshua there, remember, he's before the bar of God. And who stands and speaks for him? The angel of the Lord. He comes down from being a judge to being his representative to taking on the guilty verdict as his own. This is what Jesus has done for all of us in his act as our surety. He comes, he speaks on our behalf and takes our verdict as his own verdict. And he pays the highest price for us, his very life. And see, now again, this is what silences the law. Every time the law comes and says, you owe us, you owe the law 100% righteousness, Jesus presents his resume for that every time. This is what keeps the law silent from condemning us. Jesus holds it up and says, look at my resume is complete. It's done with. I've canceled all of those obligations. He presents his resume as if it was ours. And he cancels all of that outstanding debt. See, David knows. He says, mine eyes fail for thy salvation in verse 123. He knows that that is him. He is a failure. He is a fallen sinner without this surety. Without this Lord and God who acts as his representative, his stand-in. Because the debt of sin is too enormous to pay. It's too uh, expensive, we might say. We were talking about this on Wednesday, and I don't want to keep going over it, but sin is an infinite debt, something that we cannot pay. It is always accumulating new balances. It's an infinite debt of sin. And nothing that we can muster can pay back this debt. That's why David is saying, mine eyes fail. He longs, he says, my eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. He's longing for the day when this salvation and righteousness would be fulfilled in his own life. And he says, mine eyes fail. He can't realize it. He can't make it come about. It's because he knows what the obligations of the law are. They're not just goodness, they're perfection. They're not just morality, they're holiness. It's righteousness that's required. Not just being a good person. It's 100%, 24-7, 365, pristine obedience. That's why Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, Father, or, uh, uh, be ye holy as your Father in heaven is holy. That's the standard. That's the measure. That's the bar. And David knows that bar. He knows that measure. Such is why he says, I cannot get to that, that bar. I cannot get to that measure. Such is why he cries out, deal with thy servant according to mercy. Verse 124. He fails that measure. And he says, God, I am going to fall if I do not have your mercy. And this is the exact measure. This is the exact obligation. That Jesus, our surety, God himself, our representative, fulfilled for us. This is him acting as our surety. 
He fulfilled all of the obligations of the law. But, and this is what we harped on on Wednesday again, is, is this very thing. Is that not only is Jesus' act of us as a surety for us, not only is this something that clears our debt, because that would be good, but not good enough. He didn't just cancel your sin. He gave you his righteousness. This is what makes the gospel so glorious and effective. Why? Because it doesn't just erase all the bad stuff you did. It gives you Jesus' righteousness as your own. It's his account as yours. Going back to Colossians chapter 2 where it says that he nailed all of that, that work to the cross. That the letter of the law was nailed to the cross with him. That all of that was nailed and taken away in his death. And in its place is his righteousness. Such is why we have so much immense comfort. That when the law comes calling and says, I demand righteousness, you can say, I have it. Not because of you, but because of your Savior, your surety. First, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is the gospel that silences the law. This is the gospel that gives us assurance and comfort and peace in all of life's weariness. That we have a surety. We have one who fulfilled it all for us. Charles Bridges, the wonderful commentator on this chapter, he writes this. He says, the surety is found. The debt is paid. The ransom is accepted. The sinner is free. Why? Those two words. Be surety for thy servant. And he is. This is what the Lord God, Jesus Christ, the King and Savior is for all of us. And the wonderful thing is, he says, Be surety for thy servant. Let not the proud oppress me. He says, uh, uh, verse 125, I am thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. See, he's reading of this glorious good news, his, uh, his long-promised surety that would be from his own house and his own lineage. He's reading about it in this word. You know, that phrase that keeps repeating throughout this chapter is, according unto thy word. This is the good news we have, according unto the word of God, that he, God himself, is our surety. Which is a comfort. Why? Because even when we don't feel as if we have this good news in our souls, in the bowels of our bodies, it is true for us. It is true for us even when we don't see it, even when we can't feel it. Such is why David is, is expressing this. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation uh, and for the word of thy righteousness. Even when you don't feel like a Christian, <laughs> the word of God says that if you believe in these things, you are a Christian. Isn't it wonderful that your Christianity isn't based on your feelings? It's based on this eternally sure word of God, which declares that Jesus is our surety. 
Whether you feel like a deplorable wretch or not, if your faith is in this surety, this stand-in, this representative of, of you at that bar of God, a Christian you are. A son of God, a daughter of God is who you are. Notwithstanding how you feel towards the word at those present moments. <laughs> it's this word that doesn't change, that isn't alterable, that doesn't get, uh, ups, uh, it doesn't get uh, upset or unrested. It's this word that is resting on the eternality of God as we've already seen in other stanzas. See, David is confessing, mine eyes fail. Again, it's that, that phrase that just literally means he's exhausted. He is spent. He is wasting away from realizing this salvation that is promised. And he feels crushed under this weight. Again, that's why he pleads for mercy. And he's at his wit's end. He says, mine eyes fail. Deal with me according unto thy mercy. I don't have any other hope except for that. I don't have any other uh, confidence except for you dealing with me in mercy. And he says, it's time for you to work. I love that phrase in verse 126. It is time for thee, Lord, to work. He has no ability to work this out. <laughs> he is at his limit. He is at his wit's end. I am, I, I, am, I am not able to do anything else, God. It's time for you to work. That's a good place to be. It's a great place to be if you are expressing the fact that you can't do anything else. Good. Because God has done it already for us. It is God's time to work. This is, this is the good news that God is keenly known by those who have nowhere else to turn. <clears throat> this is David here. He has nowhere else to turn. He's failing. He is banking on only mercy. And he says, God, I need you to work. I need you to stand in for me. It is time for you to be my surety. He says, it's time for you to work. He has no other option. And this is why he can express his love and esteem for the word. Look at verses 127 and 128 again. He says, therefore, I love thy commandments above gold. Yea, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. This word of God which declares that he has a surety in the Son, Jesus Christ. This word tells of his true way of peace, his true way of hope and rest and everlasting comfort, not through things that he can gain from gold or riches, through any of those things. He says, I love it above fine gold. Why? Because this is what is going to give him comfort in all of life's days. The fact that he has someone that took his sins for him. That will take his sins for him. That's why he can hate every false way. He doesn't want to be deceived by false comforts. By the fact that he can become a good person. And that's what's going to save him. That he can just be just a little bit more faithful. And that's what's going to give God praise. No, it's the fact that he's banking on his surety's faithfulness, his surety's fulfillment of all the obligations that he so owed. And this is why the word is more precious than anything. This is the glorious comfort of this entire chapter. That according unto the word, we have 
a surety, a substitute. Someone who stands in for us, takes our verdict, and delivers us. See, this is, well, this is, this is the great fact of the Bible. It tells us you need a Savior, and then guess what? It presents one. It presents a Savior. It says you cannot get by without one. It says, guess what? One has already come for you. For David, it was one is coming. From your very lineage, David, you will have a Savior come. And for us, we look back and say we have a Savior who has already died for us and risen for us. This is what the good word promises, the good news that we have. And it's good no matter what. Again, it's good regardless of our current situation. Let me read you this passage from Bridges again. Because it's so comforting to me. That this good news of Jesus' act as our surety is independent of your situation. Because why? It's fixed in the word. You can't alter it. Bridges says this. Cheering indeed is the thought that amidst the incessant changes in Christian experience, our hope is unchangeably fixed. We may not indeed always enjoy it, But our salvation does not depend upon our present enjoyment of its consolation. (laughs) Regardless of what season of life you are in. One in which you have coming away from a struggle. Or you're in the middle of a struggle. Or there's one ahead of you that's just looming out there. (laughs) You have this consolation that is sure no matter what. That is comforting no matter what situation of life you are in. That you have a surety, a stand-in, a representative who silences the law for you. Who bears all of the accusations uh, against you on your behalf. He bears it all for you as your surety, your substitute, your stand-in, your representative. You can always count on that word. You can always count on this gospel. You ask me to define the gospel, I use this. Be my surety. And that's what God is. That's what God is for all of us. For all sinners of the world, He is their surety and their substitute. That's why you can bank on Him forever and ever. It's your unchangeably fixed consolation. That Jesus is your representative. Let us pray.